Hello, listeners. My name is Jason Jefferies, and I am your host for Bookin, sponsored by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is Kara Black. Her first novel, Murder in the Marais, was nominated for an Anthony Award for Best First Novel, and the third novel in the series, Murder in the Santier, was Anthony nominated for Best Novel. Her newest novel is Murder in Bel Air, published by Soho Press. Kara, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's great to be here, Jason. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to have you here. And Kara, you have been writing these books for 20 years. What is it like to live with this character, and, um, Amé Le Juc? Did I say that right? Le Juc. Le Juc. <laughs> for so long and still be telling her story two decades after you started. Yeah, it's kind of amazing because, Jason, when I started writing, I was so happy to get my first novel published, Murder in the Marais, and that took me three and a half years. And when I sold it, my editor at Soho said, uh, well, where's Aimé going next? And I said, excuse me? And she said, yeah, you know, Aimé has her dog and the man she met and the case. Well, you are writing a series, aren't you? And I lied and said, of course I am. So I ran to the computer and started working on the next one. But, um, yeah, so I never intended to write a series. I have just, and I really sold a book at a time, you know, I, and we had a contract for one book. So I think that sort of kept it fresh because I really um, just advanced Amy's life. And now 20 years being intimate with this fictional character is kind of amazing because um, I go window shopping with her in Paris and I say, I think, you know, well, would you wear that? And she would, or go shoe shopping. So that's kind of fun. And I've seen that with 19 books that there is going to be an arc to her story, you know, with her family life, her, her daughter, her godfather, the man. So, so it is going somewhere, probably. <laughs> Thank you. And what has it been like um, writing at that pace, writing books so often, you know, almost a book a year pace? I imagine it was hard when you started and has become easier over the years. Yeah, my son was very young, so it was really stealing time to write. And, um, you know, before school or, you know, after school. But I feel that, you know, when you have a contract, that's something to honor. It's also your job to do. And I also have this now cast of characters that Amy will be working with or having disputes with. So her personal life continues, her business continues, and I just sort of ad- advance that. And for me, it's about the place. I start with that part of Paris. Thank you. I have a three-year-old son at home, so stealing time is something that I am very familiar with. Yep. <laughs> um, Carrie, your books take place, of course, in Paris, but you live in San Francisco. And there have been a few authors who have drawn parallels between the two cities. What do you love about Paris that makes you want to keep writing about it? And what do you love about San Francisco that makes you want to live there? Well, Paris is, there's so much history there. You start scratching the surface and there's tons of history. Like in Bel Air, I had no idea all this history existed. But it was funny, I was staying with my friend's um, mother, my neighbor in San Francisco, who's French, and Madame Gerbeau, and she lives in Bel Air. And I'd stayed there often, and I was so surprised to learn the turbulent history of the revolution occurred there, and it was the hunting grounds of the kings. And uh, and so I just thought I was never really paying attention to it. But, but I love Paris because there's always something 
happening. It's a vibrant, it's not a museum, you know, it's a vibrant living place and so much history. And what do I love about San Francisco? Well, I don't know, the hills. <laughs> it feels European, I think a lot of people say. Yeah, I agree. The hills seem foreboding to folks who are just visiting, but I became very used to them when I lived there and enjoyed getting my exercise you right. know, without even trying. Um, thank you, Kara. You've said in uh, Murder and the Marais, your first book, that you just wanted to tell the story of your friend's mother. Can you tell us about that? Sure. In the 1980s, when I went to Paris, my friend took me to the Marais, which maybe and many of your listeners know it's so different now and gentrified. There's even a Zara on the Rue de Rosier. But she took me down the Rue de Rosier, and, and the Marais was really dirty and soot-stained. The buildings were sagging uh, 17th century and showed me a window of an apartment building and said, this is where my mother lived during World War II. She was a hidden Jewish girl. She wore a yellow star. And in 1942, she, she was 14, came home from school, and uh, the apartment was empty. And the concierge, she asked her, and she said, I don't know what happened, because in 1942, right, we didn't, no one knew exactly what was happening. She ended up living in this apartment until Liberation, hidden by the concierge and her son, um, and later found out her family had gone to Auschwitz. And I just couldn't get over that, you know. Imagine living by yourself at the mercy of other people who were kind enough to help you. Uh, in the 90s, I went back, and I had like a three-year-old as well. It was in Paris, and I remember putting him to sleep. My husband was there, and I went out into the Rue du Rosier, and, and I thought about that story. But now I felt differently because I was a mother, you know, with a young child, and I thought... What if in, you know, what if it was me? What if that happened? What if we had to hide? What what would I do to survive for us to, you know, eat? And and I just really struck me in a different way. And then I thought, well, this was now fifty years after the war, and what if I did something or a character did something and uh, you know, whatever, to survive, it came back to bite her fifty years later. So that really influenced me. It was a it was and my friend's mother is actually still alive, the hidden child. So um, and, and she's carried that with her all her, of course, her life, you know, and how that how that informs the way we live. Wow, thank you so much, Kara. And speaking of mothers, you mentioned your mother in the introduction to this book, um, Murder in Bel Air. What does this specific book have to do with your mother? Oh, yeah, my um, so Amy's mother, Amy is an American who disappeared uh, when she was eight years old. So Amy has always felt this. She was raised by her father and grandfather, and always felt that she there was some reason she was a naughty girl. Her mother left, you know, the, the abandonment issues, and so her mother we. We hear, you know, hints of her throughout the series, but her parent, her father, never wants to talk about her. So, but in this story, Sydney is we. I can say we see Sydney LeDuc, and whether she's working for the CIA or not, we don't know. But after I wrote this, I thought if my mother thought that readers thought that Aimee LeDuc's mother was based on her, she would turn in her grave, literally. And so, so I just felt like writing about that because my mother was not that way that I know, but I think she influenced me in storytelling a, a lot. Thank you so much, Kara. Listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsor, and then I will be right back with Kara Black. 
The Bookin Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Kara Black, author of Murder in Bel Air, published by Soho Press. As we mentioned earlier, 20 years have passed in our world since the publication of the first novel in this series, but only six years have passed on the page, and this novel, Murder in Bel-Air, takes place in 1999, which was a momentous year, the last year of the last century and millennium. How is this novel rooted in 1999, and what do you have to consider when you're writing a story that takes place at this time? Sure. Well, the series all take place in the, in the 1990s, uh, just because, uh, you know, it started in the 90s. So I, I have to reflect technology with no Facebook, no Twitter. Uh, you could smoke in the cafes and, you know, only the French military had GPS. So I do reflect that time because I remember it. Um, and I think um, not to dwell on the Holocaust, but there were certain things coming out in the press and President Chirac was admitting France's complicity with the Vichy government, which w- the world knew, but this was huge in France. So there were cracks in the fissures of silence, and people were starting to talk about the past, you know, a dark past, and plus all the events in the world. And in this story, it's set in 99, um, because that's sort of where we ended up. Uh, Chloe is 10 months old, and my friend was a, fr- a French journalist, Laurence, who went to live in the Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast, at that time. And at that time, you know, fr- it was the jewel in the African crown, so to speak. It was a, it was stopped being a colony in the 60s, but it was had the most stable government of the former French colonies. They had a huge cacao production, you know, they were wealthy, so to speak. The French people loved to go there, easy access for holidays from Paris, you know, safe and wonderful beaches. And But according to Laurence, it was not such a rosy picture. And so actually in 99, there were the rumblings of uh, overthrow. And Christmas Day 99, there was actual coup d'etat in the Côte d'Ivoire. So I sort of drew on that um, because a lot of it was manipulated from French from Paris, you know, the former uh, sort of manipulator for de Gaulle. So it's sad, but yes, a lot of it was manipulated from Paris, from what I understood. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Kara. And when I'm reading books, um, I always pay attention to the characters who are animals. And in this novel, um, in others, uh, M.A. has a dog, and the dog's name is Miles Davis. Are you a fan of jazz music? I am, and French people love Miles Davis. Mm-hmm. He's like a you know a god there, and constantly. So it was fun when I um, got to when I was writing the prequel, Murder on the Quay. It was like, how did she, how did she, you know, get Miles Davis or Mise Davis, as they say? <laughs> and so she was like riding on her bike, and uh, there was this 
puppy that her grandfather had found, and she's hearing that, or she was taking care of it, she's hearing Miles Davis, the blue song, the song of blue. Mm -hmm. And so she was like, oh, of course, he's Miles Davis. You know, it was just, I just thought that fed into it because French people love jazz. And, and you know, and of course, Miles Davis is very well-behaved, much more than my dog. <laughs> For sure. Not the not the real Miles Davis. He was not um, well-behaved at all, but the no. dog. Uh, do you have a favorite Miles Davis record? Mm, maybe that one I just said, the yeah, blue one. Kind of blue. Kind of blue. A classic. Excellent. I like that one as well. I'm partial to On the Corner, which is more of his fusion uh, mm -hmm. era. Um, well, thank you, Kara. A detail that is mentioned seemingly in passing by the character René, I believe, is that there is a chapel in Paris where the Sisters of Adoration pray nonstop for the victims of the guillotine and the terror. Uh, can you tell us more about this? Is this a real thing? Oh, definitely. Um, they've, that was until recently. They have stopped. But uh, the guillotine was at Place de la Nation, minutes away from this chapel, and they uh, guillotined 1,306 victims. And they put them in carts and just uh, shuttled them over to uh, this reclaimed convent, requisition convent, dug a mass, two mass pits and dumped them in. And, um, and then when, uh, when Napoleon sort of seized power, some nobles bought a patch of land right next to this pit and um, bought it and exhumed, and I don't know how they did it, exhumed uh, the noble aristocrats, their family, and put them in tombs and buried them in this small sem private cemetery, Picpus. The others were left there, and um, in the private cemetery is the Marquise de Lafayette, and there's an American flag flying over his grave. And he's buried there because his sister-in-law and mother-in-law were executed but he died under you know, normal circumstances, but he has the right to be buried in that cemetery. But the people that were the commoners, right, who were left in the pit, um, they took their names and they wrote all the names of the 1,306, put them on the chapel wall with the ages and their professions. And uh, it's just tragic when you go in there, it's very moving. Uh, and then you see them, and one I always remember was Marie, 17 years old laundress, you know, it's just tragic. They just rounded them all up. So you can go there and you can visit and you can see the, you know, you can see this. Uh, it's, it's really, there's a real feeling there too, especially when you go near where the pit is and then the private cemetery and people have a lot of respect for that. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kara. It's details like these that make um, your novels and your setting truly jump out from the page. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, this novel, Murder in Bel Air, opens quite violently. Um, can you set this up for us, perhaps, by reading um, a passage from your novel? Sure. Yeah, I can set it up. It's um, Paris, late October 1999, Monday mid-afternoon. The young woman stumbled on the cobblestones in her worn shoes, fist in her pocket, clutching the steak knife she'd nicked from the cafe. She'd felt eyes watching. Fear had charged up her back, impossible to ignore. Her gut had screamed at her to get out of there. Now. Why hadn't her contact showed? A car engine revved up, gears scraping. She glanced back and saw a black Renault slide onto Boulevard du Picpus. Her heart pounded. Walk faster. 
keep going, past the bull players and around the bandstand. The sky was oyster gray. She could make it to the metro station at Picpus. At Ecole Saint-Michel, parents and small children waiting for a school dismissal clogged her path until they took in her homeless appearance, which made them scatter. The swollen clouds opened in a downpour. She heard the car's clutch grind. She broke into a run, lungs heaving, shoelaces flying, turned the corner onto Avenue de Saint-Mandé. She could hear the car gaining on her. Any moment, it would jump the median, ram her against the stone wall. Dripping wet, she sprinted toward the metro steps ahead of her. She could make it. Get the documents to the only person she trusted and prevent a disaster. A car door slammed. Footsteps slapped the wet pavement behind her. What if she got stuck on a platform? Caught in the metro? She reconsidered. The double-grilled gate to a nearby building's courtyard was standing open as a car pulled out. In the pelting rain, she ducked inside, ran through the courtyard, scrambling past the parked cars, and through an open portion in the fence to the empty adjoining lot, which was being paved. Its old gate opened onto a convent's grounds. She skidded on the wet grass, perspiring in her oversized jacket and ran along the stone wall, past the cemetery, through the brown wood door, to the tree-lined convent grounds. No one would find her there, at the Petit Sur des Pauvres homeless shelter, through the gray haze of rain and the branches of the fig trees. She could make out the white habit of the intake nun, and then she was caught from behind. She gripped the steak knife in her pocket and whirled around, she recognized the man. Don't touch me. Running your mouth, salope. She struggled as he pushed her against the wall, kicked at him desperately. Where's the... She tried to scream, but he covered her mouth with his hand, his sour breath in her face. She fought to aim the knife at him, but he caught her fist in a grip like an iron vice and twisted, turning her own force against her. Trained reflexes, she thought, her last thought, as the steak knife plunged into her neck. So deeply, it hit the wall behind her. Blood pumped out of her carotid artery, staining the raindrops on the rhododendron blossoms. Her eyes glazed, and the gray went black. Thank you so much, Kara. That was a wonderful reading, and what an intense opening that is. Now, Kara, normally um, when I do an interview, I have the reading be the last thing. But before we started recording, you told me about a new novel that you have coming out in April. And this novel sounds fascinating to me. And I'm wondering if there's anything about it that you would like to share with our listeners. Oh, sure. Well, thank you, Jason. Um, yeah, it's a standalone historical historical thriller suspense set um, in the first two weeks of uh, the German occupation of Paris, which is June 1940. Uh, the tentative title, working title, is Three Hours in Paris. comes out, I think, April 14th. And we have a female assassin, Mark's woman. And I can't tell you anymore. I'd have to, you know, mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I understand. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Kara. I really look forward to reading that one. I have been speaking with Kara Black, author of Murder in Bel Air, published by our friends at Soho Press. Kara, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Jason. Once again, I would like to thank Kara Black for joining me. Signed copies of Murder in Bel Air can be purchased in store at Quailridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. If you're a writer who wants to explore your craft, receive feedback on your work, and make new writing friends without the pressure and expectations of a university writing program, then check out the Redbud Writing Project. This new school offers in-person classes and workshops in short story writing, novel writing, memoir, submitting, publishing, and more at community locations in Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill. Visit redbudwriting.org to learn more and sign up. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookend.